Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. Uh, Kristen, I grew up in a household where both of my parents worked the exact same amount, essentially. Uh, they both worked for an airline. My dad was a pilot. My mom is still a flight attendant. And so they, they kind of split household and, and parenting duties while one was flying. The other would be home watching their precious little snowflake daughter. Is that you? <laughs> that would be me. <laughs> not, not your <laughs> sweet sisters. Yeah, not, not the sister they keep locked up in the closet. Uh, but despite the fact that they worked the exact same amount and they were home kind of the same amount, my mother was still, oh, sorry, dad. My mother was still always the one who was responsible for the cooking and most of the cleaning. And actually, I would get kind of bummed when my mom would go on a trip because that meant that I would be eating kid cuisine out of the freezer. And I just always got upset that the pudding went in the oven with the rest of the food, so the pudding was hot. But anyway, my point is that in straight households such as the one I grew up in, the chores are not always shared equally. No. Um, and first of all, my response to the kid cuisine thing is I thought that penguin mascot was really cool, mm-hmm. but I never got that kid cuisine. So you were kind of living my dream. Oh, wow. The grass is always greener. Yes. But similar to your household, my folks, same kind of deal, both uh, working parents and mom cooked dinner mm-hmm. every night and did the dishes. Yep. And now that I am an adult who cooks her own food and understand what it takes to prepare a meal, um, just for one, she was cooking for like like 12, not really 12, <laughs> in, anywhere from like five to seven people. And I used to go in and nag her all the time. Like She would have gotten home from work, be working on a large dinner. And here comes little Kristen. Like, when's dinner going to be ready? I still do that. <laughs> I I now understand her frustration with that because, my goodness, those are a lot of balls to juggle. But that imbalance of household duties is certainly not unique to our upbringings. This happens all the time, especially in straight couples. Right. There was a New York Times article talking about, uh, they, they profiled a few straight couples who aren't letting gender determine the division of labor at home. But this is not really reality for a lot of couples out there. Um, the University of Wisconsin's National Survey of Families and Households shows that the average wife does 31 hours of housework a week while the average husband does 14, which is about two to one. And when the wives stay home and the husbands are the sole earners, that ratio goes up to about three to one with the women doing 38 hours of housework versus 12 hours for the men. But when both have full time paying jobs, do do you think that do you think it evens out? No, no. You are right, Kristen Conger. Nope. The women still end up doing 28 hours of housework versus 16, which is still about two to one. And even if the wife is working and the husband is not, and guys, this isn't, we're not, we're not out to give you a hard time here, but even when the husband is not working, the wife still ends up doing most of the housework. And that does not even take into account childcare. Yeah, and the ratio is ridiculous for this. Yes, the ratio is incredibly skewed, and this is probably news to absolutely no one, um, but, but the ratio of female to male 
child caregiving is around 15 to 1. Right. 15 <laughs> to 1. And as the New York Times article points out, that's not much different from 90 years ago. So our grandparents and great-grandparents still had this same sort of child care ratio. And it's this interesting phenomenon where socially and professionally women and men now enjoy a lot of equality but once we come back home there's something that happens there's some sort of breakdown now that's not to say that uh people even just among my roommates for example um we are not we're not in a relationship but i mean we've lived under the same roof now for going on 2 years and over that period of time we've adopted kind of our own chores. For instance, I never take out the trash. God, Kristen. I hope my roommates aren't listening, but you know what? (laughs) They probably realize that I hate taking out the trash. It just does not, it's not something that I do. Yeah, you have to find your niche. Exactly. What is your niche? I am a fantastic dishwasher filler. I do, I mean, I will go in and I will, if someone goes in there and sloppily throws in mugs and whatnot, I will go back, I will rearrange things, and I will clean out the dishes mm-hmm. in a very tidy fashion. Well, good. But the trash can, no thanks. Well, so, yeah, it's, it would be hard to break down your situation since you're living with a bunch of women folk. But in a, in a man, woman, straight marriage household, uh, th- there's a lot of gender norm gender scripts and schema going on that kind of dictate what people do. Even when people go into a marriage thinking, oh, we're going to be equal. I am a woman mm-hmm. and I am powerful and equal and I have my rights. I can vote. But, you know, then things, chores of the house still end up falling along certain lines. And that's probably why that New York Times article mentions that when straight couples argue, it is most likely to be about children. There's that 15 to 1 ratio. Yeah. Children, money, or the division of labor. Mm-hmm. But the question that we're asking today is whether or not gay households are more egalitarian. Because the article by Lisa Belkin goes on to explain how a growing body of evidence shows that the straights have some things to learn from same-sex couples because most studies show very um, few differences in dynamics among gay and straight couples. But when you come down to how the household duties are divvied up and conflict resolution happens, there are some pretty compelling differences. Mm-hmm. According to Charlotte Patterson, a psychology professor at University of Virginia, Heterosexual fathers work an average of 40 hours each week, hetero mothers 24, and lesbian mothers 35. So there's an interesting breakdown of, uh, who's, who's doing, uh, who's working mm-hmm. and how much. And studies show that lesbian couples experience little of the inequity that heterosexual couples do around the house. And in regard to child rearing, there still is not a lot of data around um, gay male couples in child rearing just because um, gay male adoption is still not, the, the data set is not as large just because um, it hasn't caught up to um, the adoption trends. So a lot of this focuses on heterosexual um, couples raising kids versus lesbian couples raising kids. And USC San Francisco psychiatrist Nanette Gartrell says that um, there there is an interesting difference in uh, 
conflict over child care among lesbian couples because it's not a thing that, that with a 15 to 1 ratio where one um, person might be very uh, frustrated that they're doing all of the work. But actually, the big conflict comes that uh, they're not getting enough time with a kid. Right. Instead of uh, straight couples households where the mom and dad tend to fight over who is shirking responsibility mm-hmm. as far as child rearing. And um, the dynamic can change in uh, lesbian households based on whether one mom is the biological mother. And according to Nanette Gartrell's research, 75 of, 75% of couples she interviewed considered themselves co-parents, while 25% considered the birth mother the primary parent. So this looks like, you know, even if... This is not an adoption, obviously. This is when one mother has the baby. Most of these couples are saying, like, no, we're, we're co-parents. Even if she carried the child, we are co-parents. We're in this together, and I want to spend time with my child. And so if you look at straight couples, not only is there some a lot of frustration that, that naturally builds up because of a lack of co-parenting, uh, because one thing that that New York Times article, which was profiling parents who were hell-bent on making things as equal as possible, at some point the, the scales tip toward one parent or another doing a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but normally, and on average, those scales tip so much more um, against the mother who is often working and often you know, taking care of the kids most of the time. Um, and then also adding on that, the bulk of the housework each week, whereas lesbian and gay parents and heterosexual fathers all report doing around six to ten hours. It's the same for all of them. But mm-hmm. once you toss in heterosexual women, we're, it, the numbers skyrocket for us. Right. And this is from Esther Rothblum, who's a women's study professor at San Diego State University. And she says that heterosexual married women live with a lot of anger about having to do the tasks, not only in the house, but in the relationship. So heterosexual women report in several studies, including Rothblum's that we'll talk about here in a minute, um, that they're having to do a lot of the household chores mm-hmm. on top of paying work sometimes, full-time paying work. And then they have to be in charge of the relationship maintenance as well, finding out what's wrong, you know, talking about the problems where, you know, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into withdrawal and demand also. Mm-hmm. Um, and before we go any farther, just to reiterate again, this is, this is not some kind of diatribe against, um, straight men in households. Right. Uh, because what we discovered through this research is that gender is not necessarily the, the crucial variable here. It's not a man versus woman thing. It's about a balance, a basic balance or imbalance of power. Mm -hmm. It all comes back to the power and the money. The power of the babe. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. Rothblum's study that that I was referencing uh, was published in the journal Sex Roles in 2005, and it looked at whether same-sex households are more egalitarian. And she and her team surveyed same-sex couples who had civil unions in Vermont during the first year of that legislation, which was 2000-2001. She also looked at same-sex couples not in civil unions and heterosexual married couples. And I think she pulled the heterosexual married couples from uh, the same-sex couples who were in civil unions. They were siblings, right? I believe, yeah. And she found that married heterosexual couples had a more traditional gender division of finances, household tasks, and relationship maintenance behaviors and found that few differences existed between lesbians and civil unions 
and those not in civil unions. It was slightly different for gay men um, because gay men in civil unions did differ from men not in civil unions as far as relationship stuff, division of finances and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the imbalance was often related back to power and income. And this is not a new concept at all. Um, A lot of social science research has found that within households, the person who earns the higher income, which typically happens to be the guy, ends up doing less housework than those who earn a lower income, which has traditionally been the female. Um, In this study, uh, the married heterosexual women uh, were more likely to report their partner paid for items in general, including the rent, utilities, groceries, and I would just like to point out the woman's clothing and personal spending money. That's weird. Um, These women also reported doing more of the household tasks while their partner was more likely to do the outside chores, drive the car when traveling together, and fixing drinks for company because we live in Mad Men. (laughs) But again, I think that some of this is probably a, a natural byproduct of people playing to their own strengths, such as my impeccable dishwasher arranging skills mm-hmm. versus your maybe better trash taking out, <laughs> if we were. I'm very, yes, no, I am very good at taking the trash out. I am terrible at emptying the dishwasher. I would rather throw myself in, into traffic. See, we would we would compliment each other well. We would if we got married. Yes. Um. Let's see. But as opposed to the uh, heterosexual women who who felt saddled with more of the housework, uh, lesbians were more likely to report sharing finances and household chores more equally. And the look at gay men, both men in civil unions and those not in civil unions, reported dividing finances more equally, with the exception of paying for utilities. Uh, gay men in civil unions reported more equality in paying for utilities than did either the heterosexual men or the gay men not in civil unions. And according to the Rothbloom study, sexual orientation was a stronger predictor of division of household tasks than income difference. So... One of the cornerstone findings of this Rothbloom study is that sexual orientation is a stronger predictor, perhaps, of division of household tasks than income difference. And that adds a whole new spin to this issue of how power influences the household duties, because, uh, you know, in, in same-sex couples, that issue was virtually eliminated, Right, because, you know, I mentioned the, the typical gender scripts and schemas that heterosexual couples have when, when they tend to fall back on gender roles when they get married. Um, but those same gender scripts don't exist. Right. Otherwise. But this might come back to conflict resolution. Mm-hmm. Perhaps there, uh, there are some communication lessons that opposite sex couples can learn from same sex couples. Um, According to a study published in 2003 in the Journal of Homosexuality, when same-sex couples argue, they tend to fight more fairly than heterosexual couples, making fewer verbal attacks and more of an effort to diffuse the confrontation. It seemed like there was less, um, there were fewer kind of games and cattiness, for lack of a better word. Right. And, I mean, like you were saying uh, a minute ago, there seems to be, uh, according to the study, the ability to see the other p- person's point of view better. Mm-hmm. It's a more automatic seeing of the other side in same-sex couples. And 
they found that heterosexuals who can relate to their partner's concerns and who are skilled at diffusing arguments have stronger relationships also. Right. So it's not like gay couples are the only people who can resolve conflict easily. Mm-hmm. It's more of a can you be empathetic and see the other person's point of view and fight fair? And I thought it was interesting that a follow-up study to Rothblum's original uh, egalitarian household study found that, uh, this was, I think, three years after the study, found that both types of same-sex couples reported greater relationship quality, compatibility, and intimacy, and lower levels of conflict than their heterosexual counterparts. Now, this doesn't mean that they are, uh, they're fighting any less. Mm -hmm. Um, Statistically, all couples have about the, the, our rate of fighting with each other averages out, but it seems like we... It's the way that we fight and listen to each other and respond to each other that can make all of the difference. And this reminds me of a recent episode of the podcast Savage Love, where Dan Savage um, uh, has Ira Glass from This American Life on as a guest. And Dan Savage is talking about how um, he and his partner tend to fight a lot. And Ira Glass is like, oh, my, my wife and I actually had to go to therapy because we weren't fighting enough. It was like they were, mm-hmm. Ira and his wife were completely scared of um, making any sort of conflict known whatsoever. Whereas Dan was like, no, this is, <laughs> fighting's great. No, it's like the best part of the relationship in some ways because it forces you to, uh, to put things out on the table and, and then you get over it and it's fine. Right. And it was, it was kind of interesting to see those two. Um, it, it made me think of, of that conversation reading this, these studies on the differences in, in conflict approach and re- resolution. Right. And going back to my parents, I'm really sorry not to harp on you guys. I love you. Um, but going back to my parents, when when they fight, um, it's typically the dynamic is typically that my mother is telling my father that he needs to do something. She is demanding that certain things get done, that they get done a certain way. And my father is more like likely to be like, yeah, 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 it'll get done. Mm-hmm. And that is something that is seen across a lot of relationships. The old demand-withdraw problem. You see something that you want changed in your partner, you issue a demand, and that partner quickly withdraws? Yeah. Or is like, I'm going to the basement. Well, the, you know, the traditional script for the demand withdrawal is based on heterosexual couples, um, and this idea that, um, is thought to stem from essential differences between men and women, where women are essentially needling their husbands into doing things that their husbands would really rather not do because it requires communication, and straight men don't want to communicate. Right. Stereotype, stereotype. Exactly. And Berkeley researcher Sarah Holly found that the stereotypical pattern really does not just apply to straight couples. It applies to anybody who's fighting. Mm -hmm. But it depends on power. And so she offers the alternate explanation that, you know, it's not just women are this way, men are this way, but that wives desire more change possibly because they have less power, and so they therefore demand, whereas husbands desire less change because they typically have more power and more money, and so they withdraw to maintain the status quo. But uh, Holly and her team looked at 63 heterosexual, gay, and lesbian couples and found that the demand and withdraw pattern existed in all of them. Right. But when you remove that variable of gender, it completely debunks 
those um, those gender stereotypes about women as the, the more nagging and needling and men as the more withdrawn and resistant because it all comes back again to power. And um, she phrases it as um, discrepancies in desire for for change. Mm hmm. And, you know, building on the whole removing gender from the equation and then having it this this particular fight pattern built on power, um, a 1984, I know we're going back a little bit, but this, this ties into what we're talking about. A 1984 study in sex roles backed up the whole income power issue, but for lesbians. And it looked at, at their households and found that imbalances in their involvement were linked to imbalances in income, not so much that male power, that masculinity that we think is such a stereotype as far as the demand and withdraw, and found that women in equal power relationships reported greater personal satisfaction and closeness and anticipated fewer problems in their relationship. So there's really no relationship script that says who is the dominant decision maker, power holder, Mm -hmm. you know, as you might think in a typical, stereotypical male-female marriage. Um, So the study posits that lesbians may be less comfortable than heterosexual couples with unequal power relationships. And I think the, that, that script po- is such a good point because it's not only the influence of, you know, a man and a woman living in the same household because like that New York Times article that we've referenced a few times really hammered home is that despite best intentions, sometimes it is impossible to completely equalize power because not only are you dealing with your own interpersonal relationship, but also the expectations um, of employers, of friends and family on who will do what in mm-hmm. a marriage, and especially once kids are tossed into that. Um, one example that one of the, um, the interviewees pointed out was if a woman gets pregnant, a lot of people will ask her, oh, well, how much time are you taking off from work? They're not asking her her male partner the same question. Right. And a similar example was when the when both parents provided their email addresses to the teachers, that if there was a problem, the teachers would typically just email the mom, thinking that, well, well she's the mommy. She's going to be more involved than the dad. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like that's why the, the Berkeley research about the demand and withdrawal um, is pretty revolutionary because um, she points out that power-defined roles have come to be seen as gender-defined roles, which has only perpetuated those those stereotypes and kind of um, placed that undue burden on women that we're now kind of having to unravel as we are becoming more active or as active outside of the household as men are. Mm-hmm. And this has been going on for decades, obviously, but it takes a long time to break down those cultural scripts. Right. So as if we have not made the case already that, yes, indeed, statistically, gay households are more egalitarian than heterosexual households. A study in the Journal of GLBT Family Studies from 2007 reviewed the domestic arrangements of gay and lesbian couples and found a strong pattern of, here it is again, egalitarianism in the fluidity, complexity, and deliberateness in which housework is shared. And I think that deliberateness is really key. Yeah, you you have to make a decision about who's going to do what if mm-hmm. things aren't naturally falling along that like the man's going to mow the lawn and the woman's going to scrub the dishes kind of thing. Right. Because if you and I, let's say you and I are living under the same roof, you probably don't know that I really enjoy cutting the grass. I do. <gasps> Perfect. Yeah. Lawnmowers terrify me. Mm-hmm. I worked with a man who lost a finger to a lawnmower once. But I'm not going to dust. And I hate to vacuum. Oh. 
we would be perfect married See? people together. But we couldn't walk in assuming that. No, we you couldn't. Know? So yet again, this kind of uh, relates back to the orgasm podcast and that that hetero script of uh, you know ladies first. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, it's time for us to just abandon those scripts because in all of these examples, whenever um, same-sex couples like have no choice but to operate outside of the the adopted gender scripts, usually things are a lot better. Yeah, we could learn something. There's a, always higher rates of uh, self-reported rates of relationship satisfaction mm-hmm. when you operate outside of the scripts. Exactly. So now I want to hear from listeners about how they divide up chores. Cohabitating couples out there, is there a balance of power? Right. Have you tried to divide things up equally, or is one person always in charge of more? Is there a demander and a withdrawer? How, how do you work through? How do you work through conflict? Um, I am so excited to hear from people on this. Momstuff at discovery dot com is our email address, and we've got a couple of letters to share. And speaking of that orgasm episode, we've got one here from a guy named DK. And he writes, one thing that some people don't know is that while some women can never achieve orgasm during intercourse, some men cannot or have extreme difficulty achieving orgasm during intercourse as well. It's uncommon, but it does exist. It's called delayed ejaculation and is defined as an unofficial condition. And it's not meant to be confused with erectile dysfunction because there is no difficulty ejaculating via masturbation, oral and other means. But intercourse does not work. I think there's a double standard there because when a woman can't achieve an orgasm during intercourse, there are no labels, but men who can't have an orgasm during sex automatically have delayed ejaculation, even though I think there is a correlation between the two conditions. Alrighty, this is an email from Brooke that is in response to an email we read earlier about role models in the scientific community. She says... I'm a woman, and I'm currently pursuing a bachelor's degrees in both mechanical engineering and physics, and I completely disagree with the sentiment that a woman who does not desire or who does not prioritize family over everything else does not have a human side. I may have misunderstood, and I don't know Chloe's experiences, but this is a common and downright frustrating perception that many people have regardless. I know that there are many women who do wish to have a family one day, or do currently, or have concrete plans regarding it, but I feel like they are the norm. This is something that is not only expected of women, but it is assumed of them. Scientists who enjoy their work, spend a lot of time doing it, and even travel a lot are not inhuman, emotionless automatons. It's a stereotype that is actually quite baffling to me, and it's especially present for women scientists. Being involved in STEM careers does not preclude motherhood, of course, but not prioritizing family, or even not desiring a family at all, does not make you inhuman. I don't know what constitutes plenty of successful, intelligent female scientists, but it is certainly much less than their male counterparts. I think we need more women role models in STEM careers, period. If this included happy, successful, single, or childless women who weren't stigmatized for that, I wouldn't complain. So thank you, Brooke, and thanks to everyone who has written in. Momstuffatdiscovery.com is where you can send your letters. And you can also send us a comment at Facebook and follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. And then, of course, you can head over and check out what we're writing during the week at HowStuffWorks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. 
The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?